As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. You know, as he kind of wiped his chin, he said, oh, you know, we're out of alcohol, do you want to go get more? And I... And he referenced the all-night bottle shop and I was like, yeah, man, sure, let's let's do it. You know, not having two brain cells to rub together between the lot of us. Um, my keys were in my pocket and so I, I just started walking in my car and, and my front seat passenger pretty much ran, but I say ran, but he stumbled. And 
and that was it. We got in the car, and as as I was about to uh, turn the car on, my girlfriend's three friends jumped in the back. They wanted to come with, and so then yeah, I I, I turned the car over. I, I pulled out of the driveway and actually backed into a car that was parked across the street, um, as if you know that wasn't enough of an indication that I shouldn't be behind the wheel. Hey, it's Emily here. We've released two episodes this week and they are the last ones for 2022. And our good friend that you know and love, Narelle Fraser, is behind the microphone for these interviews. As some of you might know, Narelle's home has been badly damaged by the recent floods in Victoria. And on behalf of our team and the ATC community, we send a big hug to Narelle and her husband. Before we hear from Narelle and her special guests... We want to thank you all for listening to us in 2022 and wish you all a safe Christmas and New Year. We'll see you in 2023. Sitting talking to Zach today makes me feel incredibly privileged and honoured. This is a young man who was staring down the barrel of a life of crime, drugs and alcohol. His decline began at school where he was bullied, and he didn't really know how to handle it or who to speak to. Zach had been given so much as a young boy, travelling the world with his mum, and apart from maybe wanting to meet his biological father and half-sister, there wasn't much else that he wanted or needed. But he began to hate school, and he found wagging school was much more fun. However, young kids with nothing to do generally find trouble, and Zach was no different. He discovered drugs and alcohol were a way to escape some of his troubles and there began Zach's decline into a life of couch surfing, frequent homelessness, anger, destruction and abusing those who loved him. One day in 2017, Zach and four friends had been drinking all day and they decided that they needed more alcohol. So Zach drove and his four friends grabbed a ride with him to go to the local bottle shop, but they never made it. No one stopped Zach. Zach crashed his car, all occupants ending up in hospital, and Zach ending up in prison. And that's, surprisingly, where Zach's life turned around. He had time to contemplate the terrible choices that he'd made, the hurt he'd caused so many, and decided to do everything he could to redeem himself, help young kids losing their way. What happened next is incredibly inspiring. He began putting down his thoughts on paper within those four walls of prison and with his mum, they decided to write a book, Why the Fallen, hoping that it may help just one person not to make the terrible choices that Zach had. Zach lost two and a half years of his life in jail and he still has just under two years of parole to serve. But boy, is he making up for that. The book's sales have exceeded every expectation or dream he and his mum Jane ever thought possible, and it's led to keynote speaking engagements, television and radio interviews. The world really is Zach's oyster. Can we start with what was it about drugs and alcohol that enticed you initially that... uh, Grabbed you. Well, to put it simply, I mean, as you said, and thank you for having me, Narelle. Um, Pleasure. It was an escape. I was living a, 
on a small to medium-sized farm just outside of the Yarra Valley um, with no means of escaping the, my parents' deteriorating marriage. Um, and it was a very ugly situation. And so I couldn't escape physically. And so I actively sought out a different means of escape. And, and, I, and I found that in drugs and alcohol. And not just an escape from that situation, but I was dealing with an ever-increasing ever amount of mental health issues and, and, and trauma. And so it was an escape from all of that as well. So, but how did you discover them, Zach? Did somebody say, hey, mate, try this or did you? I had seen, you know, on, on TV and just other influences around me, um, you know, the usage of drugs and alcohol. And I associated that with fun and, you know, dealing with your problems uh, and relaxing and, 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 again, escape. And so I, as sad as it is to say, you know, mum always warned me about you know, bad influences, but at that time I, I was my own worst influence. And so I actively sought out drugs and alcohol and it started by stealing alcohol from, from my parents and, um, and yeah, eventually, you know, I, I found someone at school who knew someone who, who smoked weed and, and I actively sought that out. I was 15. That was when I first started smoking weed. I was, um, stealing alcohol from my parents and, you know, was drinking at friends places as young as 13. So, mm. Yeah, that's it's too young, isn't it? Did you did you know or understand that you were oh, losing control of your life? You probably wouldn't at that age, but did you know that you were deteriorating? Uh, not not for a very long time. Um, you know, everything that was happening. Um, you know, getting in trouble with the police, getting kicked out of schools. It was all someone else's fault at that point. Um, yeah. You know, and so all the bad things that were happening in my life, which were as a direct result of my own behavior and my own choices, uh, you know, I I blamed it on everybody else. It was everybody else's fault that I felt the way I did and that I was behaving the way that I was and and that I was using drugs and, and the drugs weren't weren't the problem. And so it wasn't until I was, you know, eighteen, nineteen that I realized that yeah, I was I was really addicted to drugs. But even when I had that realization that, you know, I was addicted to drugs and I was, you know, I was a druggie, um, I had no desire to change that. Gee, it's hard, isn't it, to say that you were a druggie? Like, they're strong words, aren't they? Yeah, and like, you know, the thing is, and I, and I do say junkie. I mean, at, when, at 18, I probably wasn't a, a junkie yet, but I was certainly, you know, a drug addict and, you know, I was a druggie. But, um, you know, a lot of the time you can actually watch yourself behaving in this unbelievable way um, as a result of the drugs and you're fully aware of how you're behaving and, and stuff like that and you you either can't or don't want to change. So did you not want to change or you couldn't change when you realised that you were, as you I find it hard to say a junkie because now I know you, it's, it's just hard to get my head around. But so... Did you want to change or? Uh, right towards the end, probably probably right right before my crash, uh, I was desperately searching for a way off the off that ride. Uh, but prior to that, drugs and alcohol were the only crutch and the only means that I had to deal with with my just declining mental state. Um, you know, from the age of 15, I had relied solely on, on drugs like weed and ice and stuff like that, uh, to shield me from my emotions and, and 
to not have to deal with my problems. And so, you know, by the age of 18, 19, I just didn't know any better. I didn't think that it was possible to actually resolve mental issues uh, without drugs. Gee. Did you ever consider, I mean, I know that a lot of teenagers don't think their parents understand and, you know, they don't want to talk to their parents, but did you ever think of asking for help or whether that be your mum or somebody else or did you? Um, it was as, as shameful as it is to say, the only time that I ever went to my mum for help um, was when I had completely stuffed everything up or, you know, I was you know, in a really bad state, whether I was physically injured or homeless or whatever, I would only ever call my mum for help so that, you know, I could just get back to a point where I could keep doing what I was doing. Um, mm. And that that's how it was. But, I, you know, the thing is I didn't know how much I needed help or what kind of help I really needed. Yeah. Uh, in a way, I get it because when I was um, diagnosed with PTSD, I don't think you realise how sick you are, whether it's PTSD, whether it's cancer, whether it's uh, anything, a drug, like sometimes you cannot see the wood for the trees and obviously you didn't realise how how bad you were. You, But from what your mum has said, you were a hopeless junkie. Gee, that's hot. Yeah, no, oh, it really was. That is no, but you know what the thing was, that's that, that that's not her words. Those are those are my words. Um mm, you mm. know. Um that yeah, she, yeah. she shares that she shares that same view. But uh, you know, I've given her freedom to say that because at the end of the day it's the truth. And as as uncomfortable as it is to say and admit, it, it is there's no word of a lie there. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell us about the crash leading up to the crash? like where your life was at and, and that day, what you recall? So I was just, I was in an incredibly abusive and toxic relationship. Uh, I was renting a house in Bayswater and I moved. It was, you know, it was my name on the lease and I was paying the bills, but I moved this girl in that I just started dating very hastily. Um, and then very quickly that relationship deteriorated. And as a result, my drug and alcohol usage only went up because that was the only way that I knew how to cope with things that I was going through in my life. And it spiraled very quickly out of control. Uh, you know, I moved into that place early November 2017 and my crash was the the 9th of December 2017. So it was only a few months, but it really deteriorated fast. Mm. And so anyway, I was I was throwing parties at, at, at that house as, like every weekend or whenever I could, you know, as, again, as an, as an escape from how I was feeling when I was around other people, I, I didn't have to sit alone in my own thoughts. Yep. And I was actually in the process of enrolling in the army yep. because it was at that point I knew I needed something drastic to turn my life around. And mm. and I thought, you know, the army, and I, I have always wanted to be in the army, um, but I mm. thought that was the only only way that I would be able to actually get off the drugs and, and start the set a new course for myself. But one day, um, you know, after having a bad day at work, um, I went home and you know started drinking and smoking smoking weed. That was just what I did to to unwind from a from a bad day or just any day really. And I got mm. a call from my friend saying, you know, I'm going to a comedy show in the city. I've got a spare ticket if you can drive us. And and I and I said yeah yeah sure. And so I, I drove me and two friends um, to the city to watch this comedy show. And we all had about you know five or six beers while we were there. And um, you know then we we, we drove home and. 
yeah, well, I drove everyone back to my place. And like at that point, you know, I was already too drunk to be behind the wheel of a car. You know, I'd have five or six drinks. I was over the legal limit. But um, mm. Mm. my ability to control a motor vehicle was already impaired. Mm. So, But on the way home, we were laughing and joking about how, how pissed we were going to get and how messed up we were going to get. Um, and pretty much from the second we arrived home, my girlfriend actually wasn't home and she was never not home. And so that was... I probably got a little bit too excited about that fact because there was, I knew that there wasn't going to be a screaming match. I knew it wasn't going to um, end, end in tears. Her, three of her friends were actually there. They kind of came and went as they pleased. But so, yeah, they were already in the backyard drinking and smoking. And so we, me and my two friends, we just joined them and, you know, we started sculling beers and, and smoking, smoking bongs. And then when we ran out of beers, we started taking shots. And then for some reason – you know, the loud music and there's a fire going and everyone's full of beans. Um, we just started sculling alcohol straight from the bottles. Um, and me and my friend cracked open a, a brand new bottle of vodka and just took turns sculling it until it was empty. Um, and he, he, he vomited like projectile vomited after it. But, uh, you know, as he kind of wiped his chin, he said, Oh, you know, we're out of alcohol. Do you want to go get more? And I, you know, and he referenced the all night bottle shop and I was like, yeah, man, sure. Let's, let's do it. You know, not having two brain cells to rub together, um, between the lot of us. Um, my keys were in my pocket. And so I, I just started walking to my car and, um, and my front seat passenger pretty much ran, but I say ran, but he stumbled and, and that was it. We got in the car and as, as I was about to uh, turn the car on, my girlfriend's three friends jumped in the back. They wanted to come with. And so then, yeah, I, I, I turned the car over. I, I pulled out of the driveway and actually backed into a car that was parked across the street um, as if, you know, that wasn't enough of an indication that I shouldn't be behind the wheel. Um, mm. But we actually all shared a look in the car and, and laughed as I drove off. Uh, and, yeah, look, we, we didn't make it far. I had no sense of direction. I'd driven to this bottle shop countless times before, uh, but I just I had no idea of where I was, where I was going, and all that alcohol that I just sculled had really hit, hit my system all at once. And I was already drunk, but when all that vodka hit me, like I went to a different level. So the inside of the car was spinning. I couldn't regulate my speed. I couldn't drive in a straight line. And my friend pulled up uh, Google maps on his phone because I just had no idea where I was going and he couldn't see the directions on his phone. And so I looked down at his phone and when I looked back up, I was already airborne. I was off the road and, you know, I was just flying towards this brick wall. And, yeah, and then, uh, you know, it kind of all went black after that. Um, and I came to in the car and it was, it was an absolute mess. And it took me – it wasn't until they actually – because I was stuck in the car. It wasn't until the SES actually pulled me out of the car and I could see what the hell had happened to the car and everything that it really kind of hit me. Um, yeah, it was, it was horrible. You ended up uh, in hospital, as did the other, the four, but you all, as I said to your mum, miraculously, I don't know how, but you all survived. But I thought the interesting part was that after the crash, instead of that hitting you like, pardon the pun, hitting you like a brick wall and thinking, I've actually got to change because I nearly killed myself and four people, instead of that, you continued down on a, a downward spiral didn't you it yeah. didn't actually uh shock you into stopping it, it, you just got worse didn't you so, which i find interesting 
Oh, interesting's probably the wrong word. It was. It wasn't until uh, the morning after the crash when I woke up in hospital and I found out everyone was alive. No one could tell me anything, and so that first night I spent in absolute fear um, for the yeah. well-being of everyone else. And yeah, I I found out that one of the girls um, that was in the car with me, she was at the same hospital, and so I went to mm. see her and. You know, I turned the corner into her room and she was in a back brace and a neck brace. And, you know, seeing that beautiful young girl sitting there like that, um, mm. you know, face all bruised and she had a fractured vertebrae and she was very nearly paralysed. And mm. and um, realising that I had done that, I had nearly ruined this, this young girl's life. Um, mm. I was so ashamed. I Like, and I did, I, I hated myself. And so I have always been incredibly hard on myself. Um and yeah, I did. I I punished myself and I beat myself up and I and I abused myself um, after the crash. Um, now, now that makes sense. Uh, when you explain that, so you hated yourself more. You just felt you were in a a, a place of helplessness, hopelessness. Yeah, I, I sort of get that. Just for the listeners, we might hear a little bit of banging and carrying on in the background. We've chosen a perfect time to interview Zach because the builders next door are building. So we're going to just see how we go, Zach. <laughs> yeah, so that all makes sense now because of that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. So you then uh, are charged and you then go to jail. Tell us about that hearing when you got led away in handcuffs. Well, I mean, so I had been to court many a time up to that point. Um, being a little rat bag, I was always in trouble with the police. And so I'd always been, whenever I'd go to court, I'd go and sit up the front of the court and, you know, I'd dress nicely and I'd be really apologetic um, to receive my slap on the wrists. And so I think like I knew why I was going to jail. I knew I was going to jail, but I don't know. There was still some part of me that hadn't quite got the message yet. But anyway, so I went and sat up the front of the county courtroom with my mum and um, my lawyer tapped me on the shoulder and said, no, you've actually got to sit in the back. And um, he, he pointed to the prisoner dock in the back of the courtroom. Oh, and um, and so I had to sit between two two prison guards. Uh, and from then on forward, I was I was referred to as the prisoner, and that's when it really hit that, like, yeah, no, I'm not leaving this place the same way that I came in. Uh, and you know, they read out the details of of my offending and, and the crash and what I'd done, and you know, my criminal history, and you know, it displayed an incredibly reckless young man who who had no concept of of consequences and the damage that he can cause to others. And so the, the judge, you know, said after about an hour, he goes, there's no other suitable punishment for your crime um, than a prison sentence. And so I will be reminding you into custody uh, until I, or while I decide uh, the sentence that I'm going to give you. And, and I was led out of the courtroom by these two, two officers. And that's where my, that's where my sentence started it was then and there. I was convicted of one count of negligently causing serious injury. I was charged with four. Um, I was convicted of one count of reckless conduct endangering life. Again, I was charged with four, one for each passenger. Uh, yeah. Each of those charges, all eight of those charges, carries a maximum sentence individually of 10 years. Uh, mm -hmm. So they're very serious charges. Um, but So the judge told me that 
he gave he gave me four years for negligently causing serious injury, four years for reckless conduct endangering life, six months for driving while suspended. And, you know, at that point, like, I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to spend nearly 10 years in jail. But then he said, uh, you're, I'm going to, you're going to serve this time concurrently. And so you will serve a prison sentence of four years, nine months with uh, a non-parole period of two and a half years. Um, and you don't really hear the two and a half years part. You really, you hear the big number. And, um, I bet you do, yeah. And it does. It just, it, it hits you like a train. Um, I remember standing there and, you know, I could feel my knees like beginning to give out. And I, I had this unbelievable sense of vertigo between while I was looking at the judge. It was like I was looking off the edge of a mountain staring at this judge. It was the strangest feeling ever. Uh, but, yeah, so then I was let out of the courtroom and I was taken down to the cells and my whole world had ended, you know, at that point I was, you know, 21 years old. And so nearly five years, that sounds like that's a quarter of my life so far. And that just sounded like an eternity. Um, and I don't know why, but there was this little voice in my head that said, you know, I'd just been strip searched. Um, so been stripped of my freedom, been stripped of my dignity. And I was in this holding cell getting dressed and, you know, every, every fiber of my being is going, this is the end of your life. You're never going to make it through this. But then this one little part of me just said, just leave jail in better shape than when you came in. And, and I didn't know what that looked like. And I often joke that, a you know, a decent meal and a shower would have been better shape than I was already in. Um, but yeah, in, in that moment, I just, <laughs> the only thing I knew how to do at that moment was just get on the floor and do some push ups. Um, you know, I think, Originally, it was leave jail in better shape than when you came in. I think I was probably just thinking physically because, um, like, there was mm. so much mental problems going on that that I just – I wasn't even aware of. Um, so, at the time, I think it just began as, like, physically improve yourself and then very quickly into my sentence, I realized, no, there's, like, a lot of mental issues and there's a lot of stuff upstairs that I need to resolve as well. Um, and so, it became about doing that as well. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Can you tell us about your introduction to prison and how you got through, let's say, I don't know, the first six months or 12 months? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so very quickly, I was taken to the map first which is the Melbourne assessment prison and you know the inside of this thing like you feel like you're on some like Soviet submarine it's so weird it's just the yard is just this oval um, shape and then the units surround it and it's it's a very weird place the the vibe there is just unbelievable it's not it's not like any of the other jails I've been at but you know I spent the first two nights looking down at, at Melbourne city streets because that's the view you have. And so, you know, I, I was actually looking at a street that I walked past when I went to school in the city. And I remember that. I remember looking up at the map when I when I went to school near it and thinking, geez, I'd hate to be in there. And now I was in there and it was just, it was the most unbelievably soul-crushing um, realisation. And so I, mm-hmm. I spent the first couple of nights alone in a cell crying and I got a cellmate on the third day and, man was the largest man you've ever seen in your life. Like could have absolutely just torn me to shreds. Um, and I was, I was incredibly lucky that this man had an absolute heart of gold. He was such a kind human being. And so he kind of, you know, explained jail to me and, you know, introduced me to some of his friends and, you know, we worked out and went to the gym together and stuff. And he got me through kind of the first two weeks of my sentence before I was transferred to, to Port Phillip. But, uh, yeah, Port Phillip is a really nasty place, um, very, very intense environment, very volatile. And so when I when I went to Port Phillip, you know, it was crazy because I was surrounded by, you know, people twice, twice my age, even more. And they were – I saw so much of myself in them, the the violence, the, the drug addiction, you know, the blaming everybody else, nothing's their fault – everybody else is the problem or all of these really negative traits that I saw in myself, I guess for the first time were really reflected back at me. And so it was strange because like I, I understood these people and I related to these people, but I realized it's not who I want to be. And so going from, you know, being a 13 to 18 year old, constantly seeking out negative influences, um, I was now in a place surrounded by negative influences, actively trying to seek out positive influences. Hmm. And so, yeah, the first 12 months of my sentence was absolute hell. Um, and I was, 
you know, fighting to keep my head above water in, in multiple different jails. You know, I got moved around a lot at the start of my sentence, you know, from, from the map to Port Phillip then from Port Phillip to Fulham and then, you know, moved around um, from one unit to another. And so it was, it was, it was crazy. I think I moved about, I don't know. So I moved once from the map and then at Port Phillip I moved, I was put in three different units mm-hmm. and then at Fulham I was put in two different units before I eventually got out to, to an open camp towards the end of my sentence. But, um, yeah, the first, the first 12 months I was, I was absolutely hopeless. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where my mum and I decided to write our book. And, and at first, you know, I just wanted to get everything out of me. As soon as I started writing, that was when I realized how damaged I was. Did you find the writing really cathartic? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was it was like staring into a mirror of my mind. It was it was crazy. You know, I, I started from the age of thirteen and I just started writing um, the timeline of everything that had happened between the age of thirteen to now, mm. and it was it was crazy reading. Mm. You know why I was the way that I was, and it was an incredible insight, and it gave me incredible clarity into how I had become the person that I'd become. So. I think we've spoken before about the fact that prison gave you two options. You could either use that time in your life to turn it around or you could be a better criminal. Do you want to tell us about what it was that changed your mind? Why did you decide, I didn't want to be a better criminal, I wanted to turn my life around? What was it? You know, I think first of all, being around real crims, um, you know, real gangsters and and real bad individuals, first and foremost, I realized that I just wasn't that Mm. um, and I didn't want to be that. So I think first and foremost, I, I realized that the person that I had become, I had become that to protect who I really was because who I really am is a really you know, sensitive, emotional individual. I've got a big heart, you know, I'm really empathetic and I, and I want to help people. Um, and so, you know, through bullying at school, I stopped that and I put on this bad boy persona kind of just to protect myself. And so when I was around, you know, actual gangsters and actual bad people, I was like, wow, yeah, that, so that's not me. And, you know, after that, I mean, man, like I had spent 20 odd years just breaking my mom's heart time and time again. I didn't want to do that to her. Uh, you know, and I, and I, in my head, it was like, I should not be alive. Like, I should not be alive. And I, I'd watch on the news every night, you know, car crashes where everyone died. And so it was, to me, it was like, you've got a second chance now to actually do something positive and, and, and to, you know, to do something meaningful and, you know, mm-hmm. bring value to other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I what I decided I was going to do. How did you get over your reliance on drugs and alcohol? Like, did you stop cold turkey? I suppose you would have had to, wouldn't you, to going into jail? That sounds very naive, but I believe that there's quite a bit of drugs available in jail. How did you get off it? I mean, the, the crazy thing is, and this is one of the real issues that I have with with the way that our prison system works is, you know, I when I went into jail, I I smoked cigarettes. I was addicted to ice. You know, I was I was a bong head. I'd smoke weed every chance I got. 
and you know, I went into jail and the first question I was asked is, is do you want to go on the, the patch? Um, and I didn't even understood what that meant. You know, honestly, I, I thought that they were asking me if I was like a bikey or something and I, and I, and I'm, I'm serious. It sounds, it sounds silly, but that's actually honestly yeah. what I thought, how naive I was. Yeah. And I, I said, uh, I said, no, look, I, 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 um, you know, they explained it a little bit more and I said, look, no, I think it's a good opportunity for me to stop smoking. And, you know, the, the screw that actually asked me that question said, yeah, look, that's, that's a smart choice because it, it causes a lot of problems in here. I had no idea what he was talking about. Mm. But then he asked me, you know, um, did, did you use heroin on the outside? And, and I said, no. Um, and the thing was, if I had said yes, then they would have put me straight on the methadone program um, okay. to substitute um, any opioid addiction. But mm. I mean, you can pretty much jump on that anytime in jail. It's really messed up. Um, all you have to do is say that, you know, you're using, um, bup, which is like buprenorphine. Again, it's another opioid substitute. It's, it's the most common drug in jail, um, because it's easy to hide and it's easy to flush out of your system and it gets you stoned. Um, that's all you got to do is say that you've, you're addicted to that. And now you're running up a debt and da, 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 and they'll put you on the methadone program. But so I, I knocked back the patch. I knocked back the methadone program. That's what's so messed up. Like they didn't ask me, do you want, like, you know, um, counseling, do you need psychological help? Uh, you know, do you want to get some education? What, you know, what do you want to do? You know, it wasn't any of that. And then, so they turned me loose in the yard and, you know, walking into the yard with all your bedding and that you might as well be naked because you, you know, you're walking through this yard with a bunch of prisoners who are already established in the jail. And then yeah, bang, they're throwing questions at you. Like, are you on the patch? This and that. And, and the reason that the patch is such a commodity is because they, they cook it up and they turn it into cigarettes. They soak, they soak the nicotine from the patch into into tea leaves and then smoke that, and it, it's oh like a cigarette. Right. And so it's hmm. it's a very political thing, and it, it brings a lot of drama. A lot of people get hurt because of it. Um, but so I knocked both of those back, and and I I had this just profound uh, knowledge that drugs had literally led me to this point in my life. Drugs and alcohol were responsible for every bad decision that I've ever made in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's heavy. And so drugs and alcohol had never worked for me up to this point in my life. I tried it and I tried it and I tried it again and it had never worked for me. It had never fixed my issues. It had only ever made anything worse. And so for the first time I was going to try something different. I was going to try and not use drugs and just see where that went. And so, yeah, you know, the first six months of my sentence, I didn't sleep. You know, I was just an absolute wreck. I was anxious. I was depressed. You know, I was reliving all the stupid mistakes I'd made. It was like a highlight reel staring at my the, the roof of my cell every night. You know, I was just playing on repeat every bad decision that I'd ever made, everything that I was ashamed of, every just horrible thing that I'd done. I was just there stuck perpetually watching it at night. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I hit my wits end and I, I went to – um, the nurses at medical and said, look, I can't sleep. I can't keep doing this. I need help. And, uh, and I said, okay, cool. We'll, we'll put you on some sleeping medication. Then it'll help you sleep. And I said, look, honestly, I don't want any medication. And when I said that, they, they both like turned in their chairs and had this I bet they did. <laughs> like, look of disbelief in their, in their faces. And, and they go, what, what do you mean? And I go, well, I, you know, and I said to him, I go, drugs and alcohol have led me to this point in my life. Like, I don't want drugs and alcohol. I, I want to mm. sort my stuff out sober. Mm. 
And so then they had to like dig like back into the archives of their computer to find stuff on, you know, uh, meditation and mindfulness. Um, and they printed that stuff off for me. And as I was leaving, one of the nurses said, look, do you want to see the counselor? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from there I started seeing this counselor once a week and, you know, we would just dredge up stuff that I'd forgotten about, stuff that, you know, I ended up including in my book but I'd forgotten about, um, you know, some of the some of the bullying and just, just bad stuff that I'd done and that I was covering up. And so I spent a, an hour every week in, in his office just bawling my eyes out, just unloading everything and unpacking everything that was in my head and, you know, clearing out the garbage can, for lack of a better word. You know what surprises me? Well, there's a lot of things that surprise me about that, but the fact that when you arrive at jail, they're more interested in whether you want to go on the patch rather than improving yourself. Yeah, that it's for them it's it's like oh we'll sustain and like we'll contain their addiction just long enough for them to get back out. People who have used heroin their whole lives or who have used heroin prior to jail go through their sentence on the methadone program, get out you know, then they've got to go to a chemist to get methadone and if they miss it, then they get kicked off and they have to go and find heroin or they'll get their methadone and they'll go and score heroin as well and overdose. But, you know, even young blokes who have never touched an opioid in their life get on the methadone program and get out with like like practically a heroin addiction. You know what mm. I mean? Mm. Mm. Um, and they don't understand what the withdrawal of that feels like. And so, you know, when they get kicked off the program or whatever, they'll go out and find heroin and, and, and the cycle starts from there. That that is just absolutely like to me that is criminal. That is that is an injustice, not only to the the prisoner who they're doing it to, but also the public. Like when that person gets out now, now there's a junkie running on the streets with nothing else but his time in jail. And so, for me, I battled for the first twelve months of my sentence to get any form of education. And when I finally, when my name finally popped up on their system, is like, okay, this person wants to do education. We'll get him some programs. I got told, oh, well, there's not really enough time for you to do a university degree anymore, so why don't you just do some smaller courses? And, like, that just that was just unbelievable, um, mm. you know, and so I did. I did these poxy, you know, horticulture courses or business management courses and stuff. But but it's at least it's it's trying to improve you. I, I get what you mean. The, the courses, so I did one business management course, right? It was like a three-month course. I finished it in, like, two weeks. But... When I got to the end, I said, all right, where's my certificate? You know, and he goes, well, actually, you don't you don't get one. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, the jail doesn't actually provide two of the modules that you need to complete the full course. Um, and I said, why? And he goes, they just don't. And so, you know, that small business management course that I did, I don't actually have the certificate and the qualification because they didn't offer me the complete course. Again, with the horticulture program, you know, that was, you know, I had a teacher who came in once a fortnight once a fortnight for for like three hours and then COVID happened and then she wouldn't come in and then so we never got classwork done and because you know people would leave the class or they'd get out or they'd have new people she'd have to start the curriculum all over again and so I never ended up getting that either and so it's the illusion of of education but you know I didn't leave jail with any other skills or qualifications than when I came in I couldn't even get my stop slow which is a three-day course I couldn't it, it just didn't happen <laughs> Do you mean the stop slow sign? Yeah, hold, holding a baton. All they yeah. have to do is show you how to hold a baton and set up traffic cones, and and they couldn't do that. 
um, because people would leave or, you know, new people would rock up and start the course again. And then the teacher, the longer the course went on, the more he got paid. So, you know, he'd just bring in a USB with movies on it and he'd just sit there and just show everyone movies oh, instead of actually man. giving us the qualification because, you know, that way he, he keeps getting paid. So you are a perfect example of jail can be a good thing for people. It doesn't necessarily need to feed any sort of habit that you had going in there. You have turned your life around. I just don't understand why they don't, I suppose it's money. I was going to say why they don't put more time and effort. At the end of the day, right, so, and I say this a lot, there is everything in jail to either become a really good criminal, a career criminal, or become a good member of society, right? It's it's all there. Yeah, but there is, yeah. the system is still broken. There is still massive room for improvement because there's people that if you give them the choice between a life of crime and becoming a productive member of society, they're just automatically, instinctively, and unconsciously going to gravitate towards the life of crime because it's all they know. There needs to be education and and they need to upskill prisoners and actually prepare them to, to be functioning and positive and successful members of society. And that starts from the second they get in, in, into jail. My personal opinion, probably an unpopular opinion, but I can only speak from my own personal perspective, um, is the fact that, yeah, the jail gets paid $150,000 per year per prisoner. Now, there was like a thousand, over a 1,000 prisoners at, you know, at Fulham where I was at. So you can do the maths on that. It's big business. So as far as I see it, you know, they want return customers. If if they were to to actually rehabilitate uh, prisoners and actually give them jobs and means to stay out of jail, they'd be losing a lot of money. Hey, were you ridiculed for seeing a psych and trying to be clean? Um. Well, you know, like the nail that sticks out gets hammered. And so in jail, there is a, a natural flow and like a natural grain. And so I cut across that grain <laughs> quite openly. You know, I I didn't want to take part in any politics. I didn't want to associate with those really negative heads that run the jail and stuff like that. Um, and I did. I actively wanted to better myself and I wanted to encourage other people to do the same thing. And, yeah, that rubbed up people the wrong way you know i i heard so much oh you think you're better than everyone in here and and da 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 da, da. and it like that's not what i thought at all like you know i'm <laughs> like i'm not even a good criminal guys like like you guys are, are good criminals and you know this is this is who you are like i'm not a, i'm not a good criminal I'm a, I'm a junkie i'm not in here because i'm a hectic criminal I'm, a, I'm literally a junkie and so for me trying to turn my life around yeah it did it, it rubbed people up the wrong way because i suppose at the same time me accepting my own faults and me accepting that I'm the reason that I'm in jail, it's no one else's fault, kind of forces people who don't want to have those kinds of insights to reflect on on themselves and and the fact that they're not doing anything to turn their lives around, the fact that they don't care about the people that they've affected. And so that, yeah, that pissed them off. I bet it did. Uh, what are your thoughts on the parole system? Look, I think first and foremost, parole is about protecting the, the public. You have a prisoner, and I can tell you it is it is a shock to the system getting out of jail. Mm-hmm. And so I think fundamentally parole's first obligation is not to the prisoner but to the community and ensuring the community's safety. Totally agree with that. Yep. I Look, parole has been really kind and accommodating to me. You know, I've, I've earned a level of trust 
um, because I've done the right thing, you know, but at the same time, you know, I'm finally studying now that I'm out, I'm doing a civil construction course. I had to go to my parole worker and I had to actually ask them for that um, to get that. And I think that it's just stuff that they should be, they should be pushing people to do because there's, there's people, you know, who get out and they don't have a job and they don't know how to get a job and they don't know how to ask, you know, for, for things like, can you get me into courses? Can you get me studying? Stuff like that. They don't know that they've never had that. You know what I mean? And so that kind of stuff needs to be kind of pushed on, on, on the parolee. Um, and it is, it's for their own betterment. And like, that's the thing, if they're serious about staying out, they're going to take every opportunity that they get given. That's, that's just a fact. Um, it's an imperfect system, but I think parole works. I think people, cause it, it's not easy to get parole. You know, you've got to navigate the prison system first and get through jail with as little incidents as possible. And believe me, it's like fighting and stuff like that is, is a given in jail. But if, you know, if you get in trouble for fighting for whatever reason, that's mm. a mark against your name and that can affect, affect your mm. eligibility to get parole. So what I think the issue with parole is that they seem to, the people that do get parole, a lot of them are just uh, left to their own devices and they don't know, as you just uh, alluded to before, they don't know how to look for a job. They don't know, they they haven't had the the upbringing that let's say you have had where you've, you've been, you know, you've had a, a mum or a, a family unit you've had somebody to aspire to, you know, all your drug taking in that aside. But some people have never had that. They don't know what it's like. For sure. And so, like, you know, I had a friend who got out last Tuesday, um, fantastic human being, is a lifelong friend. And, again, he wants to stay on the straight and narrow and he, he's, he turned his life around in jail as well. And But, you know, he got out and I uh, spoke to him. He got out on Tuesday and I spoke to him on Thursday night. And he goes, dude, how, do you, how, how did you do it? He goes, like, I want to go back. He goes, I feel anxious. I feel uncomfortable. I feel like, you know, he was feeling, and this is someone who does not want to be in jail. He's got a family, he's got a daughter, but that Mm. transition from, from jail to the outside world, it's so overwhelming. And and unless you've done it, you you can't Mm. understand it. And so like, you know, you talk to any normal person who's never been in jail and you go, look, I've, I've just got out of jail. You know, immediately they've got a million questions about what jail's like. Oh yeah, and they can't really offer any insight as to the the struggle of transitioning back. So I mean, a, a, an organisation, you know, like Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the really powerful things that they do is they have sponsors, right? So it would be really powerful to have ex parolees who, who have successfully completed parole and, and got their life back on track, mm-hmm. have a buddy system where that person will then help somebody else transition back out into normal life and tell them where to get the help they need and help them find a job and stay on the right track and be someone that they can relate to. Cause that first three months, that is when you're at the highest point of recidivism. And that's why the first three months of your parole is the intensive period mm-hmm. because that's when you're most likely. And so that's when you really need someone who understands. But it seems, it, it seems crazy, doesn't it? Because when you're in jail, you've got nothing else to do, so why not use that time? I'm talking about the jail authorities, not the prisoner. Mm. Like they've got an opportunity, well, it goes back to what you say about 150000 per prisoner. They want them to keep coming back. It's a business proposition. It's not about people. It's about a business, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But, yeah, like like you said, I mean, 
they would be because you know there's there's what fifty sixty thousand prisoners Australia wide. You know, if you got those blokes jobs, you know, like in mining or you know gave them the opportunity to once they're off parole get into the defence force and yeah. we'll get them yeah. get them a qualification to become a, a personal trainer because believe me, there's incredibly fit human beings that dedicate a lot of their time to being fit and to training and they they are they know what they're doing. Offer courses like that 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 actually they can then give back. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. personal trainers do a lot for people. You know, there's avenues for for youth work and drug and alcohol counselling because these people have lived this experience. Yeah. They've lived through yeah. all that kind of stuff, and so they can be a role model, can't they? One hundred percent. But yeah. they they need education. They need skills and qualifications to be able to get into those those areas. Mm-hmm. Can we move on to your book because uh, I could ask a million questions about jail because, like you just said, it is fascinating in a way for those of us who've, you know, never lived that life. It's just another world. But I must admit, having visited jail as a policewoman, I found them terribly, terribly depressing. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, I, I can't, oh, I can't, I, I hate going back in my mind to what that felt like. But what's happened since you've left jail is you have published and launched your book and my goodness now we're talking a whirlwind and this is pinch yourself stuff isn't it tell us what's happened since you left jail and about your book yeah and so look I'll start by saying that you know before before anything else I started writing that to just get everything off my chest and open up to my mum right but so you know it wasn't until I was probably until I really held that first edit complete book in my hand in, in, in jail that I realized like, you know, shit, we've actually written a book. But so when I got out, we got straight on to finishing the edit and getting the book published and we've got it published. Uh, and yeah, like it is a full on story. It, it's still hard for me to read. It's like reading somebody else's story because I'm so different now to the person that I was, you know, not just prior to writing the book, but even, you know, at the start, when I started writing the book, the person who's writing those pages is so different to who I am now. And like, yeah, you know, I, I'm an open book, so you'll have to pardon the pun, but I, I am yes. so honest about the level of my addiction and my offending and stuff like that, just shy of incriminating myself further, you know. And so, but the real powerful thing is the disposition between my mum's writing and my own because you see everything from my side as, as the person who's drug affected and who's offending and, and the perpetrator. But then you also see it from the perspective of someone who's spent their entire life just trying to, to set me up for a good future and, and, and teach me to be a good person and point me in the right direction and having that constantly thrown back in her face uh, and being absolutely powerless to stop me. And so it really clearly illustrates the effect and the consequences that you know, your actions have on other people. Uh, and in writing this book, you know, when we when we launched the book, I just never imagined how many people would reach out to us. But the amount of, you know, parents alone who are going through the same thing with their kids, whether their kids are on the way to jail or in jail or have been in and out of jail and on drugs their entire life, you know, and these parents feel helpless. They, don't, they feel like, and there's no one to support them. And, you know, like you see on the news all the time, you know, a young kid does the wrong thing or someone does the wrong thing and, you know, people automatically pipe up, oh, it's the parents' fault. You know, they didn't raise the kid right. 
And it's like, no, like I had a good upbringing and the choices I made were my own mm. and it had nothing to do with them. And so there are these parents who are ashamed and too ashamed to speak out and reach out for help because they feel this stigma like they're responsible. Yeah, like they're being judged. As your mum uh, rightly said, she was being judged as to the type of parent she was because she had a son in jail. Yeah. And and like you say, it is not it, it is your choices, it's your decisions, not your parents. I think the good thing about what you're doing is that you have taken 100% responsibility for what you've done, and I just hope that the young people that are going down that slippery slope now where you were at 15, 16, that they listen to you and they hear you because you are now speaking, aren't you, to you've become a, a keynote speaker. You're now speaking to young kids in schools. That's what you want to do, isn't it? Yeah, I'm speaking to troubled teens and, uh, you know, from the ages of 13 right up to 25 about the consequences of a life of crime and of drug and alcohol abuse and reckless behavior. And, you know, I, I focus, there's one organization I do presentations for TRAG, Teenage Road Accident Group, which is just on the dangers of drink driving and reckless driving. And, you know, we delivered it to school kids all over Melbourne and Victoria. But Zach, what do you say to those kids? Because you were driving when you shouldn't have been. You lost your licence, demerit points, but you continued to drive and really uh, abuse the law. What do you say to other kids or, or how do we fix that system where you get some demerit points, a bit of a slap on the wrist, and then you just go back to driving again? How do we change that mindset? Well, because, you know, like at the end of the day, like I grew up with uh, if you drink, drive, you're a bloody idiot. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is it's not you're a bloody idiot. If you drink, drive, you're a, you're a criminal. And, you know, and I say in my presentation, if you get behind the wheel drunk or intoxicated or you hoon, understand, like, you deserve to go to jail if you crash. Like, you are skating on a fine line between just recklessness and really not only messing your own life up, but somebody else's as well. And so if you do crash, if you get behind the wheel drunk and you have an accident or whatever, no, like you deserve to go to jail. That's mm. it's as simple as that. I, mm. I say to people, I went to jail and believe me when I say that I'm the lucky one because it could have been a whole lot worse. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. you know, when I think when they hear that, no, I deserved to go to jail for what I did. It wasn't an accident. It was a crash and it wasn't mm. one mistake because it was – 10 years of reckless behavior and drug abuse and drug addiction that led me to that point. And I had driven drunk many times before. And just because I got away with it 10 times, I messed up once and it nearly cost five people their lives and ruined countless families' lives. You can't stop someone from getting into a car when they don't have a license or, you you know, you take that car off and you can't stop someone from buying a stolen car or stealing a car. Yeah, true. It comes down to... Pythagoras said to educate the boy or if you educate the child, it won't be necessary to punish the man. And so yep. at the end of the day, prevention is the best cure. So if you can prevent and change the culture that is around, you know, mm. reckless driving and hooting and drink driving and all that kind of stuff early mm. and establish a culture where mates do not tolerate that behavior, there's so many things that, Growing up, we say to our mates, oh, no, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. 
Um, it needs to be the same for drink driving. Mates need to call other mates out and say, no, nah, like <laughs> you're not doing it. You're not getting in the car. You, you can't do that, mate. Um, but then at the end of the day, like there's just, there's just got to be punishments for the ones that don't listen. I believe that there should be something called road safety week that every year in school, every single year level participates in road safety awareness and, and anti-drink driving and anti-reckless driving activities and engagements. And that should be a recurring thing through, through school every single year. One year is road safety week. Mm. Uh, last question because we're running out of time, but how do you feel on hearing about the Buxton tragedy in New South Wales where five lives were lost and the young 18-and-a-half-year-old driver is now in prison? Yes, like you, he's responsible for, ultimately, I suppose he's responsible, but he wouldn't have woken up that morning thinking he'd go out and kill five people. But the point is that he was also um well, allegedly, he'd had driving offences before and he's in the car. Again, I, I keep coming back to that, I know, but um, my question is how do you feel when you hear stories like that? It's heartbreaking. It, it, I was absolutely – my soul was crushed when I woke up and I saw that and I was on sunrise discussing it and I suppose, you know, there is – my heart goes out to the, the families. Oh, yeah. of the victims and stuff like that um but also of the but, driver yeah and that's the thing and so mm. you know, i have an insight that not many people will be able to share but i have an incredible amount of sympathy and and pity and just empathy mm. for that driver because as you said he didn't wake up and he didn't want to kill five of his mates and he's going to mm. have to live with that for the rest of his life and he'll be he'll be doing a lot more than four and a half years yeah i mean i think he'll be lucky mm. if, if he gets yeah, and yeah. then I think he'll get a considerable amount more. Um, oh, yeah. You know, he could be looking at 20 years. So that is absolutely, absolutely soul-crushing. It, it just it breaks mm. my heart. Mm. Yeah. Well, look, Zach, I really am so incredibly proud of you, what you stand for, your honesty in the mistakes that you've made. And what I one of the many things I love about you is that you've never hidden from them, as painful as it must be to keep reliving them. You've put yourself out there and you've owned it. I must say we need to acknowledge the people you've hurt in that tumultuous period of your life, but you are doing everything possible to redeem yourself and I'm proud to be part of that journey with you and your mum. Lastly, the book, can you just give your book a plug and thank you again from the bottom of my heart. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, and thank you, Narelle. So my book is called Why the Fallen? Uh, it's available on our website, www.whythefallen.com. It's also available as an ebook on Google Play and Amazon Kindle. And there will be an audio book available shortly. We've just finished recording that yesterday. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a powerful, powerful message. Um, anti-drink driving, anti-reckless behavior. It's a cautionary tale about the drugs and alcohol drug and alcohol abuse and where it leads, the effects that it has on other people. And it offers hope to parents that it's not your fault if you've done everything you can do. It's You have to actually just look after yourself and understand you're not to blame and, and to not beat yourself up and, you know, not isolate yourself. And I think it offers hope to parents that, you know, they might get their kids back one day that, you know, because above all else it shows that it doesn't matter how far you fall, 
you know, as we say, it's what you do after the fall that counts and you can turn your life around and, and be a positive member of society and do good things. Have a listen to you. <laughs> it's just such a feel-good story. It certainly didn't start out like that, but, gee, it's ended like it, hasn't it? Anyway, thank you, Zach, uh, right, again. Mira. I love you to pieces. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Zach. See ya. Bye. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. Hub Australia. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.